Well, good morning. Well, happy Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, if you would, please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 11 through 21 as we continue our journey through this powerful book. And, uh, and once again, uh, we're going to see gospel bombs exploding all throughout this passage, uh, because that's what the Apostle Paul does in the letter of Galatians. And I, and I know for, for some Christians, it can be tempting when we go to church and, and we hear the gospel being preached, uh, it can be tempting to kind of check out, because we're like, man, I already understand this. This message isn't for me. It, it's for the non-believer. And so we tune out. And, and maybe we hope that the person next to us is less listening because they really need to hear it, but not us. And I just want to remind everybody here um, that Paul is writing to the churches of Galatia, meaning this message is for people who already believe in the gospel. So if you're here this morning and you trust in Christ, Paul's not writing to your pagan neighbor. He's writing to you. And he's writing to me. And one of the main things that Paul wants believers in Christ to recognize is that those who claim faith are called to live by faith. And I don't know about you, uh, but there's still much in my life that doesn't match the faith that I claim. Uh, there's still much growing that I need to do because I deeply want what I believe to impact what I do. And if that's your desire as well, then pay attention to what Paul has to say in Galatians chapter 2. This passage is going to break up into two main sections. Section 1 is verses 11 through 13, where Paul is going to highlight Apostle Peter's hypocrisy. And then section 2 is verses 14 through 21, where Paul is going to lay out how he went about rebuking Apostle Peter's hypocrisy. But before we dive in, let's come before the Lord, and let's ask him one more time to open our eyes to the truth of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Well, Father God, we come before you again, and we want to beg, we want to ask, we want to plead that, that you would move in our hearts, and that you would move in our minds, because if you don't, we won't get anything out of today. But we want to live out that which we proclaim and affirm. And so we pray that you would change us. And we ask that you'd use this time for your glory, for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, starts, let's start off by reading verses 11 through 13. It says this. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in, in a hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Let's stop there. Well, what's going on in this passage? Well, verse 11 shows us. In this rather shocking passage, the Apostle Paul rebukes Apostle Peter to his face. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy. Probably one of the more dramatically 
tense situations in all of the New Testament, uh, but really it, it fits well with what Paul is doing all throughout Galatians, because Galatians is a doggone fight, and he does it throughout the entire book. He starts off the letter fighting and defending his, apostles, his apostleship. He's fighting against the Judaizers. He's fighting against this false gospel of works. And in this passage, he fights against a brother of his who isn't living up to his calling. Cephas is the Aramaic word for Peter. Peter is the Greek word. And Paul stresses that he boldly opposed Peter. This word oppose in the Greek means to stop somebody in the direction they are going. In Paul's mind, Peter is doing something that must be stopped. And so the question is, well, what in the world happened? Like, why is Paul so upset? And what did Peter do to make Paul this angry? Well, apparently, Peter had come down from Jerusalem... He's hanging with the church at Antioch, which is largely made up of Gentile believers. And initially, Peter eats and he fellowships with these Gentile believers, which is a big deal for a staunch Jewish man like Peter. And it's hard for us to understand the weight of what's going on here because of the way our Western culture operates. Uh, For many of us, eating a meal really isn't that big of an event. Now, that's not true for everybody. Some of you are like, no, eating a meal is a really big event for me. And you're thinking about your next one right now, saying, hurry up, preacher, so we can get to that main event. Um, But in our culture, in the 21st century, everything's fast. We go through the drive-thru, we grab our meal, we slam it down, and it's on to the next activity. But in the first century church, eating meals was everything. Because in a culinary society such as this one, everything evolved around the table. For this culture, eating meals was slow. It was intimate. It was relational. Sharing a meal with somebody was much more than just slamming down food. Eating with somebody was a statement. It carried social and cultural implications that rarely exist in our society today. That's why Jewish people were flabbergasted when Jesus ate a meal with tax collectors and sinners. They're like, can you believe it? This guy has the audacity to eat with people like them. And that's what made Jesus so radical. He was willing to engage in slow, meaningful conversation around the dinner table with some of the most despised people in society in order to showcase his approval and his acceptance of these people. And many Jewish people hated him for it because for centuries, the Jews prided themselves in being distinct from others. They were known for their strict dietary laws that separated them from the Gentiles. That was their identity. For many Jews during this time, they resented the Gentiles. The Gentiles were second-class citizens. They were sinners. They were unclean, and they wanted nothing to do with them. Read Jonah, and you'll see an example of this mentality. 
In chapter 4, the prophet Jonah has a hissy fit with God. Why? Because he knew that God would be merciful to the Gentiles if they repented. And he didn't want to see that happen because he absolutely despised these people. Which is why Acts chapter 10 is so significant. You've got Cornelius, a God-fearing Gentile, inviting Peter, a God-fearing Jew, into his house to have dinner with his family. Jews didn't do that type of stuff. This was a big no-no in Jewish culture. But God appears to Peter in a vision, and he tells him to cut and eat things that used to be unclean. And Peter's shocked. He said, no, I can't touch that stuff. This isn't right. But God appears to Peter three times, and he says to him, hey, Peter, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. God tells Peter, hey, Peter, this gospel's for all people, brother. What used to be unclean is now clean because of Christ. So go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. I mean, this is like a huge paradigm-shifting moment for Peter. And so Peter obeys. He slams down some bacon, some pork belly burnt ends, and some crawdads. (laughs) And he says, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. And he starts to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. That's Acts 10. So fast forward to our text. Peter is now in Antioch. He's enjoying his freedom that he has in Christ. He's fellowshipping with the Gentile believers. He's eating their food just like God instructed him to do. He's living out the gospel. But then certain men from James show up and all of a sudden Peter starts separating himself from these Gentile believers that he's been fellowshipping with because he was afraid of the party of the circumcision. Imagine being part of a gang called Party of the Circumcision. That does not sound intimidating to me, um, just awkward. But these guys, these guys really rattled Peter. This phrase, party of the circumcision, shows that they were Jewish brethren whom scholars have labeled as Judaizers. And these were men who claimed, they claimed to be Christians, but they preached that salvation was only possible through obeying the Mosaic law. In Acts 15.1, we see that these men sought to distort the gospel by declaring, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, they proclaimed that Gentile Christians must take on the sign of the Mosaic covenant, circumcision, and become Jewish in order to participate in the Christian faith. And even though the Apostle Peter doesn't hold to this view, when these guys show up, they intimidate Peter. We don't know what they said to Peter. We don't know what they did. But whatever they did had such an impact on Peter that he began to withdraw and separate himself from the Gentile people. I was thinking about this passage the other day, and it reminded me... um, of a scene from the movie musical, The Greatest Showman. And if you haven't seen that movie, the movie is about a circus. And one of the circus ringmasters who is white had feelings for this trapeze artist who was African-American. But his parents were these white-collar folks who didn't approve of the relationship. And there's this really powerful scene that I think relates well to what's going on here in Galatians. So look at the screen. 
is it just me or does, like, after watching that, do you just want to punch Zach Efron in the face? Okay, it's like, um, like, come on, Zach. You're made for more than that. Um, but man, it's, it's frustrating because as we watch that scene, we can sense that his actions didn't match his convictions. In fact, he compromised his convictions in order to appease those who wrongly disagreed with him. And, and I know for some of you, like that seems, that seems actually hard to, hard to watch because it hits home. Like, you know what that's like to be rejected by people you love, by people you thought had your back, but when things got hard, they left you alone. Instead of loving you boldly, they balked in fear. And you've got some wounds because of it. Unfortunately, that's what's happening here in Galatians. Peter loves the Gentiles. He knows he's called to share the gospel with them. He knows that through Christ, there's no longer Greek nor Jew, for we're all one in Christ. But certain people show up and they intimidate Peter. And because of fear, he doesn't follow through with his convictions. And he begins to pull away from people that he loves. And unfortunately, this isn't the first time that Peter's done something like this. We can read throughout Scripture and see that often, when pressure mounted, when conflict came, Peter's negative tendency was to fear. And this fear often led him to withdraw from others that he loved. He was naturally an impulsive man. At times, Peter could demonstrate amazing faith and courage. And then at other times, he would absolutely buckle under fear and retreat like a coward. In one moment, he's walking on the waves with his eyes fixated on Jesus. In the next moment, he's doubting and he's drowning. He's begging Jesus to save him. In one moment, he's in the upper room before Jesus' death. And he's saying, Jesus, I'm ready to die with you. In the next moment, he denies Jesus publicly three times. Can anyone here relate with that? I know I can. There's times in my life I'm ready to run through a wall for Jesus. And then there's other times in my life where I'm struggling with temptation and I don't even want to think about them. And I know Paul could relate. For he says in Romans 7... For I do the things that I don't want to do. And the things I want to do, I don't do them. Who can save me from this body of death? In our singles ministry, we were talking about this the other day. But one of the things that I love about Scripture is that Scripture does not sugarcoat its heroes. All throughout the Bible, we see God graciously uses men and women who have major character flaws. And Peter's no different. One of the weaknesses of his character was to retreat and separate himself from others because of fear. That was his solution to difficult situations. That was his release valve. When things got tough, he bolted from people that he cared about most. And it's easy to bag on Peter and get frustrated with the way that he's acting But the reality is, we all have negative sin patterns. Every single one of us. One thing is for sure, 
as long as you and I keep living in this life, we are going to struggle with sin. Walking in faith does not mean the eradication of sin patterns in a person's life. That will not happen until we get to heaven. 1 John 1.10 says, If we say we have no sin, we make God to be a liar because we all sin. So my question is, what about you? When difficulties happen in your life, when pressure mounts, how do you respond? What negative character traits is God trying to refine in your life? If you're having a hard time thinking of any, ask your spouse. (laughs) Not right now, things will get weird. But maybe later when you get home. Or ask some of your closest friends. Say, hey, when pressure mounts, when conflict comes, how do I negatively respond? I remember years ago, um, I was talking to one of my friends on the phone. And uh, for whatever reason, I was talking, and my daughter comes up, and she grabs my pant leg. And she says, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. I said, okay, hold on one sec. And she just says, Daddy, I'm perfect. (laughs) And uh, I was like, hey, man, hold on one sec. And so I squatted down. And I was like, hey, girl, like, you're probably, like, the cutest person in the entire world, but you're not perfect. (laughs) Nobody is. And then I got back on the phone. (laughs) And I looked back over, and my daughter's got these big old tears in her eyes. (laughs) I was like, oh, no. (laughs) And so I, I go up to her. I say, hold on. And so I go down, and I squat down again, and I look her in the eyes. I say, what's wrong, Avery? And she says, but daddy, I am perfect. (laughs) And I said, listen, girl, I love you, but you're not perfect. And your daddy's not perfect. Nobody is. There's only one person who's ever lived that's been perfect, and his name is Jesus. And he died on the cross for your sins. And he rose from the dead. And if you believe in him, he'll forgive you of all of your sins and he'll make you brand new. And one day when you get to heaven, you will be perfect. But right now, you're still a work in progress. <laughs> and now, okay, if you were to ask my daughter, so if you want to ask her when she, she'll probably run up here at the end of the service, say, hey, Ava, are you perfect? She's going to confidently say, nope, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. Nobody is. But then she'll tell you, but one day, one day I will be. One day I will be. Listen, church, nobody's perfect. Nobody. We all got weak spots in our character. But if you trust in Christ, one day he's going to fix those weak spots. And he's going to make you right. He's going to make you right. Well, right now, we're a work in progress. And during this life, God wants to refine you. He wants to mold you. He wants to refine those negative sin patterns. He wants to sanctify you because let it be known that whatever character flaws we don't get rid of in our life will often harm and hurt the people closest to us. That's what sin does. It never just affects us. It consumes and eats everything around us. 
because of Peter's character flaw, now other people in the church are being carried away, even Barnabas. But thankfully, even when we are faithless, our God is faithful. God loves Peter. He's the rock that he's going to build his church on. And he's not going to give up on Peter. And God's not going to give up on us either, church. And the way that God is going to keep Peter in line, he'll do the same thing with you and I, is by giving him a faithful brother in Paul who is going to boldly and lovingly call out his sin. Proverbs 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do for another brother or sister in Christ is to confront them in their sin. Ideally in private, like Matthew 18 talks about, but if necessary, at times publicly, which is what Paul does here. And that's what verses 14 through 21 is all about. In verse 14, Paul says, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? I love how Paul says, they were not straightforward about the truth. Literally, they were not walking in a straight line. It would be equivalent to being at a party, watching someone you love get drunk. They then have car keys in hand and they start walking towards their car. If you love them, you're not just going to say, hey, bud, have a safe drive. Call me when you get home. Not if you love them. If you love them, what you're going to do is you're going to form tackle them, okay? And once they're on the ground, you're going to wrestle them and take their keys away. And then you're going to hide them because you love them. Because it wouldn't be life-giving to allow them to continue down the path that they're on. One of the most unloving things we can do as Christians is to notice the harmful behavior in another brother or sister in Christ and then do nothing about it. Years ago, I, I remember watching a show about a young man who was struggling deeply, deeply with drugs and alcohol and his family knew about it, but they weren't sure what to do. And so they, for a long time, they didn't say anything. And finally, they decided to do an intervention. And they sat down with their son and they said, listen, son, we love you. We want to get you some help. We want to send you to a treatment facility. And the young man replied with tears in his eyes. He said, what took you so long? Church, who is someone close to you in your life that you need to have a heart to heart with? Who's someone close in your life that, that you need to confront? Because sometimes the most life-giving thing we can do for someone is to call out their sin and point them to Jesus and say, you were made for so much more. You don't do that behind their back. You don't gossip about them. No, you pray and you ask for God's timing and you ask for God's wisdom and you seek counsel. And then you address your loved one face to face. And that's what Paul does here with Peter because he loves Peter. 
He wants what's best for him. He's got his back and he's not gonna let him continue to live this hypocritical life. He gets straight to the point. He says, Peter, you're a Jew, yet you've been living like a Gentile. In other words, you've been enjoying that freedom, haven't you, brother? I've noticed you haven't been eating kosher lately. You've been enjoying them pork ribs and being bros with your Gentile brethren. Yet now, all of a sudden, you want Gentiles to live like the Jews? What kind of hogwash is that, Peter? That doesn't make any sense. And and we can resonate with Paul's frustrations. Because one of the greatest obstacles to the gospel is Christians who profess faith in Jesus, yet live lives that look nothing like the Jesus they profess in. I used to try to get a friend of mine in college to come to church with me. And he'd be like, no, I'm not going to church. He said, why would I want to do that? He said, it's full of hypocrites. They worship on Sundays, but then they, they party and get drunk on Thursdays. Why would I want to surround myself with people like that? My friend exaggerated, but he raises a legitimate issue. Why do so many people profess Christ yet live lives that reflect the complete opposite of what Christ stood for? Now, if we're honest, most of us would admit that at some level, to some degree, we're all hypocrites. Every single one of us at certain times, act and pretend in ways that we know is not an accurate representation of who we really are. And for some of us, we feel enslaved to this dualistic type of life because we know how to play the Christian game. We know how to give the spiritual answer. And all of us, myself included, are guilty of acting way more righteous than we really are. And it can be exhausting because we feel like a fake. And so the question is, how do we avoid living a hypocritical life? How do we seek God in an authentic way that represents the gospel? What does that look like? Well, verses 15 through 21 show us. Paul tells Peter in verses 15 and 16, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Okay, there's a lot going on here. So let me try and break it down real quick. When Paul fell into temptation and he started to separate himself from the Gentiles, this unfortunately communicated that the Jewish people were somehow better off because of their heritage. Since they knew the Mosaic law and the Gentiles didn't, they were somehow better than the Gentiles, like they weren't as bad. But Paul's like, Peter, you know that's not true. Because while the law is good, it is incapable of saving anybody. That's why Jesus came to earth. Because what we needed is what the law could not do, and that's justification. Because what the law shows us is that everybody is a sinner. 
No one is righteous. No one can earn their way to God. Whether you were born of a preacher or whether you were born of a felon, when it comes to justification, you are no better off. You both equally need a Savior. In fact, what the Bible declares is that if we're going to be judged based off of our own works or our own efforts or our heritage, the verdict is going to be overwhelmingly guilty. The only words you will hear from God if we trust in ourselves is you are condemned. So the age-old question then is how can a man be justified before God? And the answer is really simple. Faith. Faith in what? Faith in a God who loves us so much that he sent us a Savior. And that Savior's name was Jesus. And he lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. And he died the perfect death that we deserved. And he rose again in order to prove that he was God. And if you have faith in Jesus, his perfect righteousness will be transferred to your account. And the result of this faith will be justification. Meaning you're righteous. You're clean. It's a gracious act of God. It's a gift all you have to do is believe. And a lot of people just have a really hard time with that. Um, there's an old saying that if you want to make some people mad, preach law. Tell them that there are certain things that they must do in order to earn salvation. But if you really want to make some people mad, preach grace. Tell them there is nothing they can do in order to earn salvation. No amount of works or moral achievements will ever be enough. They are completely dependent upon the grace of God for their salvation. It makes some people mad because they want to prove themselves. They want to prove their worth. They want to earn it. But God says, there's nothing more to earn. There's nothing more to prove. I already did it all on the cross. You'll need to prove your worth. I'm already telling you, you are worthy. That's why I died for you. You don't need to prove your value. I'm showing you've got value. That's why I went to the cross when I didn't have to because I don't need you. But I went anyways because you're valuable to me. And I love you. And I know you can't earn your way to me. You're too sinful. You're too sick. So I've provided a way. And it's really simple, but it takes a lot of humility. Recognize your sin and trust that Jesus is the answer to that sin problem. And for many people, it's just too easy. That is too easy, that's too good to be true, so they won't believe. And in vain, they'll just keep trusting in their own efforts in order to earn their salvation. I was on an online Aggie football message board the other day because I have an addiction to Aggie football. That's one of my negative sin patterns. <laughs> And, uh, and on one of the forums, for some reason, they were talking about the gospel, which that's why I get on there, you know. And, um, <laughs> and this one atheist guy posted this statement. He said, so if by believing in Jesus, I am forgiven of all of my sins, past, present, and future, that means I can live however I want to, and it doesn't matter. And that's a big hang-up. 
for a lot of people when it comes to the gospel. They believe too much emphasis on grace will lead to license to sin. They believe preaching a gospel of grace is a highly dangerous doctrine because it weakens a man's sense of morality. Because if God justifies bad people, what's the point of being good? It's a common accusation that skeptics have thrown at Christians for thousands of years. And Paul addresses that very question in verses 17 through 19 where he says, But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul asks a question. He says, if more grace leads to more sin, is God, is Christ an advocate of sin? And he answers his own question by giving the strongest possible negative that there is in the Greek language. And he says, may it never be. Listen, hopefully, hopefully I've made it really clear in this sermon that we are going to struggle with sin. I think for a lot of us, we're going to continue to wrestle with negative sin patterns for the rest of our life. But if your response to the gospel is that means that I can sin more and do whatever I want, you do not understand the gospel. Because those who truly get grace will naturally respond in worship. I've shared this illustration before, but I'm going to share it again because it's good. Um, when my daughter was a baby, a lot of you parents know what I'm talking about. You, you wrap them, you swaddle them so they can't move their arms. That's kind of the point. You mummify them, okay? And I remember we used to do that with my daughter. And every single morning, we would go in to her room and she'd have this big smile on her face. And then as we would unwrap the swaddling clothes, instinctively, her arms would do this. They'd shoot up every single morning when we took the swaddling clothes off, her arms shot up. They shot up in response because that's the natural response for someone who has been set free. When you've been released from bondage, the natural reaction is not to go back into bondage, but instead to enjoy your freedom and to be grateful for what you have. The proper response to grace is not license. doesn't mean, oh, I can just sin and do whatever I want. It's not legalism, oh, I just got to do a bunch of rules. No, the proper response to grace is worship. It's worship. I've been granted something I don't deserve, and I've been given something better. I've been given new life, new joy. My affections have changed. I want to follow you. For the Christians struggling with hypocrisy and sin, and I know there's probably a lot that are here that do, what you need more of in your life is worship. I love what Timothy Keller has to say on this. He says, the secret to freedom from enslaving patterns of sin is worship. You need worship. 
You need great worship. You need weeping worship. You need glorious worship. You need to sense God's greatness and to be moved by it. Moved to tears and moved to laughter. Moved by who God is and what he has done for you. That's what you need. For those of you who have trusted in Christ, can I remind you, you're free. You're pure you're clean, you're forgiven, you're loved, you're accepted, you're adopted, you're highly thought of, you're worthy, you're valuable. You don't need to prove yourself anymore. God's already proved that he loves you so much. That's why he came. Worship him again for what he's done. And that's how you live out your faith. When I give my daughter ice cream, I don't say, young lady, you better eat that ice cream. <laughs> if I did, she'd look at me like I was a maniac. Because ice cream is meant to be enjoyed. It's meant to be enjoyed. And it's the same with grace. It's the same with following Jesus. Following Jesus isn't about a bunch of rules that I have to do. It's about a relationship that I get to be a part of. That's faith. And you don't have to force me to do it because it tastes so good. Paul goes on to say in verse 20, and we'll end with this. For I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Well, church, we're, we're about to come to the communion table. And as we do so, I want us to focus in on verse 20, where it says this. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You know, one thing I, I think is interesting about this passage is Peter's response to Paul's rebuke is not recorded. I think it's safe to assume that he responded well because he went on to write First and Second Peter. <laughs> um, but I think it's interesting. His, his response isn't recorded. And I think it's appropriate for all of us to put ourselves in Peter's shoes and ask ourselves, how are we responding to God's grace? Think about that for a moment. How am I responding to God's grace? Am I responding by living a life of sin and building back that which Christ has destroyed? Am I responding by just trying to follow a bunch of rules in order to prove my worth? Or am I responding by worshiping? Am I responding with gratitude and I live my life in that manner? For some of you, I think the appropriate question is, have I placed my faith in the grace of God for my salvation? Or am I still just trusting in myself? My works, my religion, my morality. Or do I trust in the work of Christ alone? For others, you've trusted in Jesus for your salvation, but you're not walking in the freedom that you were made for. You've built back up that which Christ has destroyed and you're living in sin again. 
And I just want to remind those of you struggling with sin that the sin that you're struggling with right now has been crucified with Christ and no longer defines you. That's not who you are. So you can sin, but it ain't who you are anymore. You're clean. You're pure. And because of the covenant that God has made with you, you can start over this morning because our God's committed to you. Christ still lives in you and he ain't leaving because he's faithful. There's no condemnation for you this morning, only love. Because when Christ sheds light on a broken area of your life, it's never to condemn. It's only to set you free. Walk in freedom again this morning. And as you contemplate on those things, let's come to the communion table. Um, when the plates come here in a minute, you just need to take one cup because there's two that are attached and you'll separate them. And then we'll take communion together here in a moment. Ushers, would you please pass out the elements? thing I love about communion is it's a reminder that because of the covenant that Christ has made with us, renewal is always possible. Always. We can start fresh again this morning because of what Christ has done for us. And so when you, when you drink this cup and you eat this bread, it's a reminder that our God's for you. He's not mad at you. He loves you. And he wants relationship with you. He wants fellowship to be restored. And another thing I love about communion is we don't take communion alone in our closet. We do it with the body. Because communion is about family. And family sticks together. Family fights sin together. And family worships together. That's what communion's all about. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says this, the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, the body of Christ. same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes church the blood of Christ would you pray with me Well, Father, we come to you again this morning and we want to express our gratitude because you've granted us something that we can never pay you back. But the good news is you don't want us to. You gladly sent Jesus to do everything that we could not do. And you've called us as your children to rest in him. And so I pray that this morning that we would once again relish the opportunity that we have to rest in the grace of Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone here who 
hasn't believed in Jesus, then God, I pray that right now that your spirit would come over them and that you would help them to come forward and say, God, I wanna trust in you now, not myself. We love you, God, and we just pray all this in Christ's name, amen.